podcast focused on lessons learned via the musician's backstory, as well as building successful careers in the business. My name is Allison M., and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. Let's get down to business. On this episode, I have here uh, remotely uh, on Zoom, but also still in Wisconsin, Sam Ekoff. And, and you know what? I forgot to check. Is that how you pronounce your last name, Sam? That is. Okay, great. <laughs> all right. All this time, I've, you know, I've known you for a little while now, but uh, I've never thought to check that. So <laughs> thank you for being here. Uh, you are a composer and music educator based in Wisconsin. Now, what part of Wisconsin are you in again? I'm in southeastern Wisconsin. I'm actually in Pewaukee. And, and thank you so much for having me today, Allison. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I, you know, you've been one of those people on my radar for a while, and uh, I've been wanting to have you on this show because you're just so interesting to me. But I know that um, you know there's been a lot of ups and downs um, with with well the world in general, but um, and personally too. And you know, I just wanted to make sure it was a good time for you. But um, yeah, thanks so much for for doing this. And uh, you have such a prolific um, you know music catalog of uh, you know for yourself and uh, studio and and so many things that you have been doing in music and in the business and in education, too, that I've been really wanting to talk with you more about it. So, um, so you know, that being said, would you mind just starting off and, and telling us a little bit about um, what you currently do at this moment in time? <laughs> sure. Well, like a lot of musicians, I cobble together a living doing a lot of different things. And um, about, I don't know, a part of what I do is teaching, and I teach at the Waukesha County Conservatory of Music. I teach piano, I teach music theory, I teach composition, I teach some music technology and recording there. And then I also um, work as someone who is a composer, and um, I write stock music for the Modus Operandi Production Music Library, which is distributed through um, Elias Music, which is a, a company that is part of um, the Universal Music uh, family. So it's it's a interesting thing because I get to do lots of different things in e any given day. Uh, I find that very exciting. And to me, it's very engaging. I think I would become bored if I had to do the same thing over and over again. So I thrive on the diversity of all the different things I get to try in any given week. Yeah, that is so cool. So what does a typical day in your life look like? <laughs> I typically start um, just by answering some emails and dealing with the things that have come in in the past uh, 24 hours. And then it's working in the recording studio. We turn out, uh, when I say we, I mean um, the composers who write with me and, and I turn out an album every month. And um, wow. we'll typically be working on pieces. And so I manage the modus operandi library, which means that composers are turning in their demos to me. I'm reviewing them, making suggestions. Sometimes I make additions to them. Um, I'm working on my own pieces at the same time. Frequently, we will work on pieces which require us to engage with live studio players. And so we're prepping demos uh, for production, making sure that they're going to be completely ready when those players come through, uh, making sure the scores are totally set to go. Because when you are working in that environment, when you have, especially if you have a large ensemble there, time is truly money. I stopped and figured it out the last time we did a string date, and it was costing me about $57 per minute to have wow. those musicians sitting there. And, I mean, they're 100% worth it to have mm -hmm. such talented people playing your music. I don't know that, that what I turn out is worth their time, but I was so honored to get to work with so many fantastic musicians. And so it's a question of making sure that all those things are kind of ready. And then in the afternoons and evenings, I teach at the Waukesha County Conservatory, and I have a studio full of awesome, awesome students who really keep me going and put a smile on my face and who continue to inspire me every single day. And I love going in to teach there. 
uh, and seeing the amazing progress that those kids and those adults have made and seeing how engaged they are and the smiles on their faces and, and the pride they take in their work and in their learning. And it's truly an honor to be part of that journey, and even if it's only a little bit of their musical journey, but to kind of help um, guide them and hopefully inspire them a little bit as they go forward and, and do the things that they're going to do. Yeah, that is so cool. How many, um, how many students do you currently work with? I currently have 37 students. I'm, this is uh, the largest number I've had in quite some time. Yeah. Um, and most of those are 45-minute-an-hour lessons. So it's, it's a lot at the moment. Um, there has been a huge uptick in lessons um, hmm. since the, the, um, we got past lockdown. I think people suddenly realized that they wanted to, they've always wanted to do this, and um, they shifted their spending habits. And I think... Mm-hmm. Um, things like music lessons and self-improvement have suddenly become much more important in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good to hear. And um, what type of students do you have? Are they more, are they, I, I think you teach composition in addition to piano, but um, or, or am I incorrect in that? No, you're exactly right. I teach okay. music theory, I teach composition, I teach music technology, and I teach okay. piano. So um, it's a mix of students mm-hmm. and um I think, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a great diversity amongst the students that, that I teach. Uh, I think the thing that sort of unites all of them is that they're, they're all generally very high-achieving students who are very self-motivated and who really want to work hard. And they feel, I think I, I can generalize by saying, there are students who are not satisfied just to sort of sit there and they're, they're not there for the experience. They're mm-hmm. really there to achieve something and uh, to see what they can do. A lot of the students in my studio go on to pursue college degrees in music mm-hmm. after their time with me. That is so cool. That's great. And um, and and in your um, private teaching, is that is that group lessons at all uh, for like the music theory or anything like that? Or is it all individual instruction? It's almost exclusively individual instruction. I do have a couple of piano ensembles, and mm-hmm. so those students meet outside of their private lesson with me to do ensemble work. Um, during the pandemic, I had um, I had always taught um, ear training classes as group lessons, but I had just not been able to find a good time to do it, and it seemed as though all the students were so busy, so. When we went into lockdown, I sort of saw my opportunity to do this because all of the students' other activities had been canceled. Right. And suddenly I had become familiar with teaching online, which I had never done before. And so I told my students that I was going to start a new um, ear training curriculum and that we were going to do this. And I offered those classes to them at no charge um, as a thank you for staying with me through the pandemic. And what I thought was going to be um, six weeks of biweekly lessons, a total of 12 lessons, ended up stretching out to 37 classes. Wow. And so we had a really good time, and I think a lot of the students gained a lot. And um, I saw that really pay off in their abilities to play and their ability to compose and what they could hear in their music. So I think that that's, um, it's been a really wonderful thing. And now I have a sort of curriculum that I can use with other students who weren't able to take care of that opportunity, take advantage of that opportunity. Um, so going forward, I have a great cu- curriculum I can use that is really set up to be paced correctly for students who are middle school, high school students, but who want that challenge of really learning how to do melodic dictation and rhythm dictation and to be able to identify intervals and chords and scales. Yeah, that is so cool. Are there other um, shifts that you made in your studio because of the pandemic? Not a lot, although, as I said, I had never taught online before. I do continue to offer lessons online to students who are out of state. I have a couple of students in Texas and one in Florida. I also have a couple of students who live um, almost an hour away, and um, it's it becomes a very difficult thing for them to drive. So um, having a lesson online is a great way to do that. I don't feel that in, in... 
many cases, it's is quite as good as being in person, but it's better than not having lessons at all. Mm-hmm. So we make it work, and um, I have sort of embraced it as the next challenge in trying to become a better instructor and mm-hmm. trying to find creative ways to overcome the challenges that teaching lessons online presents. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I, you kind of touched on it already, but um, I know, you know, some some instructors privately are, are very against um, continuing the online lessons and some some love it and, and won't go back. Um, so I, w- I was curious about what your position was on that. Um, are you going to be encouraging of the in-person when possible, or um, you're, you're okay with either one, whatever they, they wish to do? I've, I've absolutely encouraged those students who are able to come in person mm-hmm. to do so, and um, I have almost no students who are within the very um, immediate area who continue to take lessons online. Um, it has, however, become a really nice um, option for students. I've had multiple students who have had COVID, active cases of COVID in their house mm-hmm. and have said, we certainly do not want to expose you, um, but could we have our lesson online today? And I think that's a great option rather than trying to seek out a makeup. If the student is well and they're up for a lesson, then we can have one online and that's, that's okay. That's better than in some ways trying to cram two lessons into one week later on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I had actually started um, trying, and I know you from uh, private teaching initially myself, So, and I, I still do a little bit of that myself. So um, I, I think I've mentioned that on the podcast a little bit before. But uh, I had started trying online lessons um, on snow days prior to COVID um, so that, you know, that those days weren't a complete loss if, if people didn't feel comfortable coming and, you know, there wasn't that. So I'd already kind of um, done the Zoom lessons that way. So it was, uh, for a lot of people, they were comfortable with it enough um, to transition. But, um, and you know, what program do you use for um, for your teaching? Uh, Zoom had been recommended because of the, the time delay or lack thereof, for the most part, um, in in, in when I was investigating that, um, but I know that you know since since it's happened, so many programs have been been brought to the forefront. So um, I think you had mentioned that you don't use Zoom. Is that correct? That's generally correct. Um, I I went through quite the the progression of trying different things because I'm an Apple user and have been for years. I first started uh. teaching using FaceTime, and um, for those students who were not Apple people, we used Skype. And um, I quickly ran into a lot of limitations there. So we then um, tried using Zoom for a while. And that was my platform of choice for quite a while until another teacher um, brought a company called Rock Out Loud Live to my attention. Hmm. And um, their price is not only less than Zoom's, but they also do something that's very interesting. Whereas Zoom prioritizes video over audio, Rock Out Loud works just the opposite. Mm. It prioritizes the audio over the video. So the video quality, if there's going to be, if there's a bandwidth issue, the video quality will actually degrade before the audio quality does. Um, And the idea is that if you can still hear everything that's going on clearly, you can still do a good job of teaching. So I have been using that platform. It is specifically tailored toward private music lessons online. And um, there are a lot of features that I don't use. I love the fact that it has a whiteboard, and so I can snap a picture of music and mark it up for a student, and I can send it to them as a PDF when we're finished. Oh, man. Um, It's really, really cool. And um, it does a couple of other things that are are pretty neat. So if you have listeners who are... Um, private music teachers and they're teaching online, I'd encourage you to check it out. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a cool platform and the customer support has been absolutely second to none. Um, when there's an issue, you can actually get on with the president of the company and he takes time to talk to people and he really cares and he has been listening to all of our feedback and continuously improving the platform. So 
it's That's it's pretty amazing. cool. Yeah, I definitely know a lot of people who might uh, find that very very um, helpful for their their works, and including myself. <laughs> so I'll check into it. Thank you. Uh, and tell me more about uh, the work that you do as a composer. Uh, what kind of things is is that music used for? You do an album every month. You said what is what does that go towards? Um, my music is placed on a website. And um, people who need music for practically any reason can download the music and then they license it. So they pay a licensing fee. And um, part of that licensing fee goes to the publisher and part goes to me as a royalty. Um, My music has been used on literally thousands of major market television shows and radio programs at this point. Ranging from things like American Ninja Warrior to Cupcake Wars to... Jersey Shore, to, I mean, wow. all, all kinds of, it, it, you know, things like that. Ironically, I don't watch a lot of television. It's pretty rare <laughs> that I ever see any of my music placed in a television program. Um, I don't find out where it's been placed until nine months after it's been aired. Oh, wow. So <clears throat> it's it's kind of one of those things. And my name never appears on screen, and I just right. get the royalty at the end. And right. it's it's a great way to make a living. Um, it's something that I've been doing since 1999 now. Wow! Um, and so the catalog has continued to grow, and it's um, uh, to me as a composer, I think it's a very important thing because you come to a point where. With all of the responsibilities that you have to your family and to the people in your life and your students, composing starts to feel like it's it's almost a, a luxury, like you shouldn't be spending your time that way, like you should be doing you know more important things. But when you feel like there's someone who actually needs your creative output, mm-hmm. it gives you that incentive to continue to create and to continue to put out music. Um, I don't know that I would continue to compose if I didn't have this opportunity. Um, I can see it being something that would sort of fall by the wayside for me, but because it's my job and Mm -hmm. because it's a a big part of how I make my living, it it feels like, oh, I really need to do this. And to me, opening up that royalty statement um, is not so much about the money that was made, but about seeing where the music was used. Because I still, after all these years, kind of get a thrill thinking that out of the millions of pieces that are out there that could have been licensed, someone found my piece and licensed it. And and to me, that's just the most exciting thing ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, how many pieces of yours, uh, like when you get this statement, does it show me show you a month to month kind of usage or an annual usage? What does that look like? It shows every single program um, on which every single piece was used. Mm-hmm. It shows you what part of the day it aired in. It shows you how many seconds of the piece they used, and um, there are different ways in which pieces can be used, if it was used as a background, if it's a theme song to something, if it's um, a short feature. And all of these um, different parameters add up to uh, what, how much the royalty payout for that will be. Um, a lot of royalty payouts are very, very small. Um, a typical TV playout that, that lasts 10 to 20 seconds might pay out seven cents. It's a very small amount mm-hmm. of money. Um, streaming royalties are far worse than that. Um, I never thought that I would see thousandths of a cent, uh, <laughs> but I see it all the time on streaming uh, royalty statements. Um, but if you have a primetime play, that tends to be worth a lot more. Um, something like like a 20, 15-second play on Dancing with the Stars is worth five to $600. So it all depends wow. upon how many people are watching the show you know, is it a rerun? Is it new? Was it featured on the show? Is it background? Is it a theme song? Is it, you know, how much of your piece did they use? They're never going to play the whole piece ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, and and um, 
there's also a separate rate that's that's used for public radio and for PBS. They pay a much lower rate than everybody else does. I always get a kick out of hearing my stuff on on WUWM. Um, a lot of the local stories and advertisements will use my music as background, and and that's basically the only place I ever encounter my pieces being used in real time in the media. But, <laughs> So. That's awesome. And uh, do you ever, I mean, are you instructed to to write pieces that will um, be useful for, I don't know, so for, for like, a, you know, a food network sort of show? Do you like or do you just um, compose something and hope it will be useful? Are you, you know, uh, given instructions on how to create? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, a lot of times. Uh, a couple times a year, we'll have uh, meetings where we'll talk about, we'll kind of map out what does this next year look like? Mm-hmm. What things are needed um, by our clients? What are they asking us for? Um, and also, we take into account what things historically that we have put out are are performing well and what is not performing well. And um, sometimes the things that I'm most interested to do more of that perform very poorly the first time around. And so it, it feels like, well, we're not going to do that again. And there are certain things that I really didn't think much of when I wrote that turn out to be, you know, some of my, my best performers. So we're always kind of looking at those things. Um, and of course, we're always trying to take into account current events mm-hmm. and um, current musical styles while still trying really hard to produce music that is evergreen. Mm-hmm. One of the hallmarks of the modus operandi library is that we're not chasing the absolute most current musical trends because uh, my experience is that a lot of those things do not age well. Right. And um, whereas I see, I, I, I know people who will say, oh, I'm doing a dubstep album. I'm doing and whatever the flavor of the day is right now, not obviously dubstep, not now, but <laughs> um, who were doing those kinds of things five uh, or seven years ago. And those albums are all but dead at this point um, because mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of, you know, call for that. That musical style has sort of come and gone. Whereas if you have sort of emotional cinematic music or big dramatic epic um, scary cinematic moment music, those um, musical styles tend to change far more slowly. Mm-hmm. So those pieces have much longer lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beyond that is the fact that um, musical styles change at different rates and different places in the world. The pieces that I wrote 20 years ago still have life in Eastern Europe. Um, I get a lot of play right. in Kazakhstan. I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. yeah, so it, it's kind of those funny things where what's cool here is not always cool everywhere else and, and vice versa. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And if you think about I mean, I've often thought just from like a fashion sense or um, pop culture sense, like what's cool in New York City becomes cool in Wisconsin, you know, five years later. And it's probably that way with music in parts of the world and, well, you know, and the the country as well, Um, kind of similarly to what what you were just saying. Yeah. Um, So how did you get into composition. Um, let's, I mean, can you take me back to, uh, you know, how you got your start in, in music really as, as a whole? Uh, music was always very much part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my very earliest memories are spending weekends at my grandparents' house. Uh, we would drive there for dinner. And uh, one of the things that happened on an almost weekly basis is my grandfather would put on country and Western records from the 1950s and 1960s, and everyone would grab an instrument and play along with the record and sing. And there wasn't any formal instruction about learning chord shapes or chords or music theory Mm -hmm. or melody or ear training or any of those sorts of things. It was just do it, watch and learn, play along, figure it out. And, um, there was also no critique. Uh, and so it was just about 
having fun family time together. Mm-hmm. And that was a really big motivator for me. Um, both of my parents played musical instruments, too. And um, I distinctly remember uh, seeing my mother play piano and saying, show me how you do that, as though it was a trick that you could teach someone like flipping <laughs> an egg or, you know, <laughs> ironing a shirt. I mean, yeah. you know, as a young child, it seemed like what well, must be a simple trick that someone can just show you. Um, and so uh, I think one of the biggest tipping points for me, though, in all of this was that um, a salesperson from White House of Music came and volunteered his time at my elementary school when I was in second grade and, and came in for Fine Arts Day, and he brought with him a Moog synthesizer. <laughs> and to me, this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my whole life. And um, I remember coming home and asking my mom, um, you know, telling her I really wanted to play these electronic music instruments. And and, um, she said, well, I don't know much about synthesizers, but um, I do know that you probably need piano lessons if you're (laughs) going to do that. And that was sort of the beginning of um, piano lessons for me. But the funny thing was that I was a terrible piano student. Um, I I feel so badly for my, my really pretty much all of my teachers. I got a little better as time went on, but um, because I would come in and I'd play a Mozart sonata, but I'd say, well, but look, he did it wrong here. He should have, and not really realizing how (laughs) how horrible I was being, what, you know, the full implications of what I was doing. I would show my teacher how I thought Mozart should have written it so the piece would have been better. Which is, you know, total blasphemy, you know, from a classical music standpoint. Um, but I was far more interested to make up my own pieces mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. to practice um, pieces from other, you know, composers. And as time went on, I, I gained a little bit of maturity and, and I, I saw the error of my ways and I saw the, the benefits of, of becoming a better student, especially when I, you know, really started taking teaching seriously and wanted to do a better job for my students. Mm-hmm. Um But I think that's really a a big part of where it came from. I always sort of fantasized about being a composer and um, getting to create my own music and having that ownership of what I was doing. To me, that was a really important part of all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, I'm extremely fortunate because there are very few people who um, live in southeastern Wisconsin who can make most of their living writing music for television and film. Um, I'm very fortunate. I double dated to high school prom with somebody who is who gave me an opportunity, and um, and somebody I continue to work with to this day. That being uh, Daniel Holter, and uh, you know I'm just so incredibly grateful for those many opportunities, and wow. um, that has really been something that has changed my career. It was that that first foot in the door. And Daniel Holter is, can you tell us more about that? Sure. Daniel Holter is the owner of the License Lab. Um, Uh And he is, um, up until very recently, owned a recording studio in the village of Wauwatosa Mm -hmm. um, called Wire and Vice. And um, Daniel has now moved out to Seattle, where he continues to manage our, our company. Wow. Wow. So you grew up with him? Um, we went to different high schools. So, different high schools. Okay. Yep. It was just that I just met him one evening and then didn't see him again. And um, then we reconnected years later, just chance encounter at a music store. And he said, you know, hey, he recognized me. Shame on me that I didn't recognize him. Um, <laughs> and at, he asked if I still wrote music and asked if I wanted to write library music. And I didn't even know what that was. Um, and he still offered me a job anyway and let me play some demos for him, which frankly were terrible. Um, but I think he somehow saw some potential there. And, um, I continued to work, uh, over the years at improving my craft. I think, um, I, looking back on it, I don't think I was as serious and focused as I should have been early on. I think I, I, really lacked a lot of the skills that I I needed. And um, I think the turning point for me was had tried to sell our house in 2010, 2011, and kind of um, our house was on the market for over a year. And we rode the real estate 
bubble right to the absolute bottom and finally had to take our house off the market. And I was incredibly disappointed. And I, I came to this, this feeling of like, I really hate being poor. This really, <laughs> this just isn't fun. It's, I, I felt so restricted by that. And, um, I thought, well, you know, really the only thing that I can do to change that situation is I can write more pieces. Mm -hmm. And so I set about turning out a finished piece every single day. Um, and whereas before, you know, I would do three or four a month. Mm -hmm. And I started turning out three or four a day. And, and um, I knew I could tell right when I hit that 10,000-hour mark. It happened right about that time. Um and I received a wonderful, if backhanded, compliment from my publisher. He said, wow, your, your stuff is actually good. <laughs> and I was like, gee, gee, thanks. That's the nicest thing anybody said to me all week. Um, but <clears throat> you come to that point where you, I, I had to go undergo this mental shift of this isn't playtime anymore. This isn't for fun. This yeah. isn't this job that's prestige. This is your job. And if you want to do this and do really well at it, You've got to put a lot more time and effort into it. And the rewards came very quickly after that. I saw my royalties double the next year and then double again the year after that. And um, they continued to increase. And, and before you knew it, we were past that housing bubble and I was able to move and to better house than I dreamed. And it's like, hey, yeah. here we go. You know, this is all headed the right direction. So. Yeah. Did you ever find that difficult to, um, you know, a lot of musicians and writers in general find it hard to be inspired um, to write something? It seems like you have no trouble with that. <laughs> um, I, I think um, I think I face that just to, just as much as everybody else does. Mm -hmm. I think that I have learned some skills and techniques that allow me to get past writer's block. Mm -hmm. I think I've also learned when I, uh, I have turned down what is going to be a musical dead end, and I've learned uh, what it feels like when I'm there, and I've learned not to try and keep going and force it. And mm -hmm. sometimes you just need to admit to yourself, this really isn't, this isn't a good idea, and you need to give it up and not, not keep going with it. Um, I think also I've learned how I like to work. Um, I've discovered that writing a piece start to finish in the scope of one day is really difficult for me. I do really well when I can start something new and then kind of let it go and, and come back to it the next day. So during that period, the pattern for me was start something, get it to, say, the 50-60% mark, and then call it quits for the day. Or if I still had time, start something else. But not really taking something start to finish, then I'd come back to it the following day and I'd start my day in the studio by finishing something else. And I came back to it with a lot more clarity. And um, it was apparent to me very quickly, like, oh, wait, these two things, those, those have got to go. Those elements need to be taken out. That's terrible. Um, but what it really needs is this that I didn't come up with that previous day. And there's things about the mix that are wrong and that needs to be changed. And just coming back to it with fresh ears um, is remarkable to me. That's, that's the thing that allows me to really do much, much better work, mm -hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, as you were talking about where you grew up, um, I forgot to ask exactly where that was. So um, what, what city were you, uh, did you come from? I grew up in Wales, Wisconsin. Okay, nice. That's a beautiful area. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, for those listening who might not know where that is, that's um, west of Milwaukee. Um, how would you describe that? Waukesha County? Um, suburb of a suburb. It's about 40 <laughs> yeah. minutes west of Milwaukee. When I grew up there, there were fewer than 2,000 people living there. Um, and so it was very, very small. Um, there was not even a stoplight in the entire oh, uh, wow. village of Wales at the time. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it's grown a little bit since then, but uh yeah, still still a little bit um less uh, it, it's not as huge as as um some other neighboring towns, but a uh, very very nice area for sure. Um and then so and you ended up studying music, I take it uh as a um for a college degree. Right. I went to the University of Wisconsin and studied music theory and composition and finished there and 
wasn't really sure what the next steps were for me. And so I started doing some teaching at the Waukesha County Conservatory and thought that perhaps the next uh, thing for my career that would really help would be to attend a recording school. And so I saved my pennies and I attended Full Sail in Winter Park, Florida. Um, that didn't last long. I was mm -hmm. dissatisfied with it. Um, I think it, it just wasn't a good fit for me. And right about that time, Daniel was building the studio in Wauwatosa, and he knew that I was um, not having a good time there and was not achieving what I had hoped to. And the invitation was, why don't you come and write and, and work with me, and I'll teach you what you were to learn down there, but I'll pay you. So <laughs> it's kind of a difficult offer to refuse, and it's... It, um, it's certainly something that did not, uh, I, I, it's not a choice I regretted, so. Yeah, wow, what a cool story. Um, it, it, did you find, um, did you find that you learned everything about the music business that, um, that you were looking to learn when you were in school for it? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, and, and, I don't want to throw any of my professors or teachers under oh, yeah. the bus no worries. Yeah. Um, at all, but <clears throat> um, there was a particular private lesson during my composition degree where I asked, um, you know, when are we going to start learning the things that would allow me to actually make a living as a composer? And mm -hmm. um, my teacher got really angry with me that oh, really? I asked <laughs> that. And um, he, he said, well, why would you ask that? And I... Failing to sense the danger gave a rather flippant answer, which was, well, I, I have this funny thing where I like to eat three times a day and I'm allergic to sleeping on the street, you know. And um, he got really angry and, and said, well, oh, you just care about money. I see. Well, why don't we just take your picture next to big piles of money if that's what you care so much about? <laughs> wow. And, and I think the truth was that it was that i was really i was in the wrong place because i was you know somebody who was very interested to write commercial music mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um i was studying at a school where um you know i they were training people who were creating high art mm -hmm. and you know i've always said that the 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 world of visual art figured it out a long time ago because they have people who are uh, fine art majors and they're doing oil paintings and ceramics and sculpture and they're, you know, doing things that are adding beauty and wonder to the world. And then there are people who are graphic design majors. And mm -hmm. those people are designing, you know, cereal boxes and toilet paper wrappers, and they make a great living. But what they do is not high art. And, mm -hmm. you know, what I do is very much designing musical toilet paper wrappers. And <laughs> I'm, I'm totally happy doing that. I mean, I make a great living. Um, it's super fun. Uh, I love what I do. But at the same time, what I'm creating is not high art, you know. And yeah. so I think figuring out the business of music took a very long time. And a lot made – there were so many mistakes along the path. Um, and I think it's just it's something that you you have to experience. I, I sorely wish that I had, you know, had some business courses. I think it would have given me a head start and hopefully prevented some of the mistakes that I made. At the same time, um, there's no teacher like the, the cold, cruel world being out right. in it and, and, f and making those mistakes and finding out for yourself Absolutely. You know, what you need to do. Absolutely. Yes. I suspected you might ha answer some of those questions that way. Um, and, and thank you for being very honest about all of that, because, um, you know, I, th I think I think a lot of programs are still very similar. Um, a lot of music programs still focus on the higher end kind of um, arts and um, performance. And and there is still room for that, for sure. But um, as far as making money as a musician, there, there's a lot of other ways to do that. And um, so thank you for, you know, discussing um, how you do that, because, yeah, it sounds like so much fun. And I mean, you're just the the amount of output that you're continually doing is just insane. Um, I had no idea. This is so cool. And so what are some of the biggest lessons you did learn along the way? Um, you said that you, um, you know, made a lot of mistakes. Thank goodness we have mistakes. I mean, the, the, how, what better lessons can we learn from? Um, but uh, what are some of the things that you remember um, learning the most? <sighs> There's, uh, I, 
gosh, there's so many things that, that I could have done better. <laughs> I mean, everything from bookkeeping to understanding taxes to uh. understanding um, how to manage people when I finally got into that um, part of my career um, to um, making sure that you know, I was continually educating myself as a, as a music educator and seeking out, you know, new opportunities for my students. There's a million things you could have done better, but I think that at the same time, it's a really important thing to kind of look at all of those as life lessons and, and to look at all of them as an opportunity for growth. And um, I, I think that when you can do that, then maybe you look, you were able to look back on your life and, and say, okay, well, yeah, I could have done all of this better, but I needed to learn that lesson because mm -hmm. it put me where I am now. And, um, that, you know, created me as, as a person and, mm -hmm. um, helped me to, to realize my, my human potential. Um, because I think if everything goes flawlessly for you in your life, if it's perfect, I, I think that, that you don't grow. Because yeah. it's those those things that force us to grow and force us, honestly, to appreciate our lives a lot more. Um, I went through a cancer journey um, a couple of years ago, and that has really changed how I've thought about a lot of things. Um, I was very, very sick. Um, but through all of it, I missed very few lessons. I kept teaching, and I discovered that having to put on some decent clothes and make myself, you know, shower and get out of bed and look decent and put a smile on my face and be there for those kids helped me to forget about being in pain and being uncomfortable and being scared. Mm -hmm. And um, that made an enormous difference, just having to show up and put a smile on my face mm -hmm. every day, even on days where I was really not doing well. Mm -hmm. um, that made an enormous difference. So I think that um, that helped me, but it also helped me to realize the importance and the impact of what I do. I mean, if I died tomorrow, I think that, yes, maybe my publisher and a couple other people would miss me. But in terms of what I do in the world and, and the mark that I make in the world, I don't think that my composing is really the most important thing. Um, I think that people who would actually miss me are my students. Mm -hmm. And um, my father passed away um, spring of 2020. And, and I, it made me realize he was a high school biology teacher. And um, I, I started thinking about legacies and the legacy that you leave behind. And I was listening to the radio as I was driving someplace. And they were interviewing a person um, who had um, was in charge of sequencing um, the genetic sequencing, or it's not the genetic sequencing, I'm sorry, the, the sequencing of um, different COVID viruses. <clears throat> and um, at the conclusion of the interview, they asked this lady, um, how did you get interested in science anyway? And she said, well, I had this high school teacher and uh, his name was Mr. Ekoff. And I just thought, how cool is this, that this is, this is your legacy that as a teacher, you have an opportunity to impact the lives of all yeah. of these people. And this is, this is really the important thing. And, and kind of pre-cancer, I would always tell people when they'd say, well, what do you do? I'd say, oh, well, I'm a composer. I write music for TV, you know, because it, that has a lot more curb appeal to it than, than saying, well, I'm, I'm a private piano teacher. But um, that experience has really changed how I kind of rank those things mm -hmm. um, in my my own estimation of their importance uh, mm -hmm. in the world. So I, yeah. it's uh, definitely something that I carry with me in my heart every day when I walk into my teaching studio now. Yeah. Oh, I love that perspective. How have you been doing um, health-wise? Great. Um, yeah. I am almost to two years completely cancer-free. And um, Congratulations. things are really good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You're looking happy and healthy, so I'm glad to see Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, there are, um, and I think that a lot of people can relate to this because it's it's not only a cancer thing, but it's just an aging thing. And there are things that you lose um, in that process. Um, and um, when you talk to the medical professionals, they will call them acceptable losses. Um, one of my 
acceptable losses was uh, that I cannot sing anymore. Mm. Um, I, the radiation to my throat damaged my larynx, and so I am unable to sing. I'm fortunate I can still speak. Um, and I had a very hard time accepting that because I think as a musician, even though I'm not a singer and I've never been a singer, mm -hmm. that's an important part of um, being a musician to right. me, that you can sing. And um, I had a really awesome, awesome therapist at uh, Freighter who was helping me through my cancer journey. And um, she said, well, that's just an acceptable loss. You just have to accept that. And I said, that that's no losses are acceptable to me. And she said, really? And she said, it's funny. I, I look at your chart here. And it shows here you had a broken nose and a broken hand. It shows here that you've had multiple concussions. And um, how is it that a piano instructor incurred all of those injuries? And she knew the answer before she asked the question. And I said, well, this is uh, due to my martial arts training. And right. she says, oh, I see, I see. And she said, well, if, if I could have told you before you started your martial arts training that you would, you know, suffer through all of these, these injuries, would it change your mind about participating, knowing what you now know about how much you've, you've benefited from that training? And I said, absolutely not. I wouldn't trade it for the world. In fact, I would take all of those injuries twice for what I've gained by participating in martial arts. And she said, oh, so you would accept those as acceptable losses. And and I said, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> and yes, you, you don't get to sing, and um, you, I don't have any feeling in half of my face any longer, and swallowing's pretty tough. But I get to be here for my wife and my kids, and I get to be here mm -hmm. for my students, and hopefully I have a little bit longer to try and make the world a better place, you know, one yeah. way or another, whether it's by writing music or by, you know, being there for some kid who walks through the door of my teaching studio. Yeah, yeah, that is that is a very important lesson that you just described to us right there. So thank you for that, um, that really valuable insight um, and experience right there. Um, does it ever bother you that a lot of your music doesn't have your name attached to it when it goes out there? No? Not at all. Not at all. Um, at first, because I also don't get to, I don't give permission for my music to be used. That's, that's taken care of by the distributor and the publisher. Um, some of my music gets used in places that I am not comfortable with. Um, um, a good example of this is it's been used on some some television shows which seek to marginalize members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and that really bothers me. Um, and, and that was kind of something that I had to figure out mentally, like, how do you deal with that? Um, and I thought, well, I can't control where my music is used, but I can control what I do with my money and the money that I make from, you know, those sorts of things. And so, you know, when, when I, uh, when my music is licensed on programs that I don't agree with, then that money, I, I don't want to make a living that way. So I donate that to um, causes that I, ho I hope will help to benefit some of the people who are um, being denigrated by those programs. Oh, so interesting. That's, that's brilliant. Um, I mean, that's, that's the most you can do, really, at that point. And yeah, yeah, I don't know what I would do. If, yeah, so very, very smart. Um, yeah, because you really have no idea. Um, yeah. Um, Nor do you another... have any control over it. Yes, and that, exactly. That's the other thing. Yeah, exactly. Because um, it, yeah, it, it's true. I, there's a there's another musician who is on uh, the the podcast, Kostya Afimov. Do you know of him at all? We've met a couple of times. Oh, have you? Yeah, and he's yes. talked about. I think he, a lot of his music has been licensed out as well, and he's talked about how people will hear his music and and say, hey. Um, I just heard your music on Sex in the City. And he's like, really? <laughs> and like, you know, and, and that's not something he ever intended to happen. But um, it, it, you, you just don't know where it's going to go. And uh, I hope you hope it's like in a decent part of the show. <laughs> but yeah. yeah but but you, you don't have control over that. And exactly. 
Um, it's it's sort of one of the things that you give up when you agree to have music published. And what I have always found interesting is there's a lot of people who are independent music creators and content creators who will say things like, well, I'm not going to sign a contract. I am not going to allow this to be distributed because I, I own this and I need to own this fully and completely and no one else can make money off of my creative output. And I understand that because I think as people who are creatives, who are content creators, who are creating media like we do, um, that there is a tendency for society to undervalue what we bring to the table, that um, the days of being able to hear any music you want without paying for it are, are that's just considered to be, you know, what you do. And um, when you when you talk to young people, the concept of paying for music is pretty foreign, generally. Um, and but I think that there's sort of an irony in content creators who say no one else can make money off of what I do because that then fails to recognize the contributions of publishers and distributors uh, for their ability to promote things and to advertise things and to connect your music with the people who need it and to connect it with those revenue streams. And the way I've always seen it is 50% of $1,000 is much better than 100% of $10. You know, so I mean... It, it's one of those things. It's like, yes, people make money off of my music and, uh, you know, my creative output, but I've made peace with that. And and for a long time, people made more money than I did off of my music. But I kind of kept the faith and kept writing until I got into a better and better position um, where it was like, OK, yes, now you can actually make a decent living on your creative output. And to me, it's not so much about um, the the dollars as it is about the fact that people need my music. Yeah, what a great feeling. Um, yeah, yeah, really cool stuff. Thank you for those thoughts. And is there uh, any particular piece of advice you might give to someone looking to do what you're doing right now? I think that there's there's um, five things that you have to have, and I'm going to actually cheat and, and look at my my notes because I <clears throat> I finally wrote this all down because it it uh, it's something that I get asked frequently. Um, not a week goes by that that I don't get a call or I don't I'm not asked you know, hey what what would I need to do if I do this and and I think. Um, for people who want to get into media composing, the five things that you really need to have are, first of all, you have to have some compositional skill. And, um, you know, this is sort of a, a catch-22 because you get the skill by doing work and you get the work by having the skill. And and it's sort of like, how do I get this? And And part of it is you before you have a paid gig, you just continually turn out things for yourself and you give yourself assignments and you put yourself on a deadline and you commit to turning out a piece every week or a piece every two weeks and um, really making sure that you're constantly doing more and more work to kind of paraphrase Ira Glass's famous quote. Um, I think another really important thing is that you have to have the right equipment. Um, and, you know, that has become the, the barrier for entry has become a lot lower than it used to be. Um, you know, if you make a fairly financially significant investment, um, you can have enough equipment to turn out some pretty amazing sounding music these days. Um, I, I am always flabbergasted by what I see my students turning out. Um, but another part of what you have to have is the knowledge of how to use that equipment. And that's really the third big thing. And that educating yourself like that is difficult. Um, finding those resources, watching tutorials and reading everything you can. And then when you get access to one of those people who knows more than you do, not only 
taking time to ask questions and being brave enough to ask questions, but then knowing what questions to ask. I mean, these are really, really important things. So in addition to having that compositional skill, having the right equipment and knowing how to use it, you also have to have the drive to kind of do it and stay with it. And this is where I see a lot of people fall down. There are a lot of people who are way more talented than I am. Um, but and they have the, the necessary equipment. They are very skilled at using it, but they just can't seem to bring things to completion. And they can't seem to stick with it long enough. Um, writing music for media composition is a very, very slow burn. It is a something that you build up years and years and years. I was writing for two and a half years before I saw my first royalty check, which I believe was for $79 for the entire year. It's, it's not something that you, you know, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's like the get rich super slow scheme. Um, <clears throat> but then in addition to all of those four things, the last thing you have to have is you have to have time. You have to have time to devote to it because um, this is not something that's fast. Even having done this for over 20 years and having, you know, over a thousand published pieces, it still is something that takes more time. In fact, I don't think I'm mistaken to say that I spend more time now on compositions than I did probably 10 years ago, because if anything, I've come to realize how much better I can do if I really take my time. If um, instead of just quick grabbing a marimba sample, if I like actually go and mic up a marimba and like, okay, I'm gonna learn the part, I'm gonna play this in, I'm gonna do all this, that takes way longer. But the result is a lot better. It's, it's all of those individualistic things that makes the music breathe and kind of um, brings it to life. And, and, and it's the detail that makes your music great. It's not so much the broad strokes, to my way of thinking anyway. Yeah, that was that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for, for having those um, five steps and... Um, you know, instructions right there for us. So very well said. Um, is there a particular type of music that you really enjoy composing? I try really hard to, you know, get into and enjoy and find really cool things about whatever it is that I'm writing in any given month. Um, mm -hmm. Whether it's, it's sort of epic film score music, or if it's much quieter music, or if it's um, children's music, or um, a couple of years ago, we even did an album of elevator music because it turns out that you know trying to license the stuff that sounds like that is it's there's not a lot out of not a lot of music out there that uh, someone can go and license. And um, <clears throat> to me, the the important thing is not to be above um, any particular style or genre of music because when you come right down to it. Um, trying to actually produce one of these pieces and to make it sound authentic and good is really difficult and it takes a lot of skill regardless of the style of music that you're working on yeah absolutely um is there um anything else that we didn't cover on here that you might like to bring up i think that you've done a great job of, <laughs> of um you know talking me through all kinds of great stuff. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Allison. Yeah, thank you. And um, if we have, uh, if we get the right permissions from Universal, we'll have a piece of your music attached. Um, and if not, then then you'll just know that we, we didn't quite get there. But um, sure. is there anything you would like to, to say about that piece, um, which is called Unlimited Possibilities? Um, you know, when you asked if I could present a, a piece of music, I sort of agonized over this and went back and listened to so many different things and thought, you know, what 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 would what would be the possibility here? And um, I settled on that piece because it's um, it's a special piece to me. We were asked to write an album of music um, as a tribute to Fred Rogers and um, and his legacy of working with children. And um, that piece is special to me because uh, I'm, I'm someone who really likes unusual and weird instruments. And um, I uh, got to play a couple of unusual and weird instruments on that particular piece, um, one of which is the Array Ambira. Um, the Array Ambira is a, um, it's kind of like a giant 
um, thumb piano. It's a couple feet wide and about a foot and a half deep, and it has five octaves of tines on it that you pluck. And um, there's only one person in the world who makes them out in Sa San Francisco. And um, the lead instrument is a Chinese flute that's called a hulusi, um, which is a um, single reed instrument. Um, and so it's kind of unusual. But I love playing very out-of-the-way instruments and, and collecting them and, and learning about them. To me, that's a, a fantastic yeah. way to kind of stay engaged and stay interested in, in composing. How fun. Yeah, so if we don't have a chance to actually get this, get that piece on the podcast, um, everyone now knows what instruments to go look up <laughs> and, uh, and play around with. I can with also them. shoot you a link to where your your listeners can hear it on the Elias Music okay. website if Perfect. that doesn't work out. Yeah, we can do that and add that to the program notes, the show notes. Um, great. Well, and where can we find more information on you, Sam? Um, if you want to hear my music, you can listen for free at EliasMusic.com. And um, my personal website is just samecoff.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's great pleasure. to visit thank with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. It's been an honor and a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll leave ratings and reviews for us wherever you're listening from. Visit themusiciansadventure.com for more information on upcoming guests, show notes, and ways to send us your topic suggestions. The Musicians Venture Podcast is hosted by Allison M., recorded at Podcast Town in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music written and performed by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again.